this was really resonated on my heart for Friday morning and something that I have ministered elsewhere, but not in the way that I feel like the Lord's taking us to do it today. And I really just thought it might be appropriate to open a little bit with my story. I'm not a storyteller per se when I preach. Um, I'm not against that. It's just not been my style really. And especially stories about me, but I thought a little bio might help because we're a room full of, in many cases, pastors, evangelists, missionaries, apostles, bishops, people who are actively in ministry, and, and um, it's my people. Um, I was raised in this. My, I was born and raised into a pastor's family, a pastor evangelist family. Let me go back to even just a little bit farther than that. My dad lost his dad when he was eight years old to a truck accident in 1964. So my father was raised with five siblings. He lost his oldest brother in that same accident. He was raised with five siblings and a single mom, and then a stepdad and a stepbrother, but he didn't have a father in his life, and the church became a father figure. My dad gave his heart to Christ when he was 13 because someone knocked on his door and invited him to Sunday school. That can work. And uh, my father gave his heart to Christ, and, and his father figures were preachers. And so my dad sort of learned what it meant to be a man by watching pastors and evangelists. And so his heritage then was ministry, and my dad pastored his first church when he was 18 years old. I was born and then raised in church. My dad was an evangelist and a pastor ordained with a little denomination called the General Baptist and I don't know if you're familiar with the General Baptists. They're not widely known. Their doctrinal stance is somewhere close to Free Will Baptist, one of the only Baptists that was Arminian. You could lose your salvation, and we did frequently. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't supposed to, but we did, or at least I did quite a bit. Um, and that was the environment that I was raised in and in church eight days a week. And I mean that almost literally, as my dad would pass, we'd pastor on the weekend. We would evangelize somewhere almost every night. And I was raised in that atmosphere. And then somewhere around 13, 14 years old, we had our own Pentecostal renewal of sorts. And we, we left the denominational affiliation and went non-denominational, charismatic, Pentecostal. Our sort of headship there was one of these large television mega ministries, of which if I named them, you would know that took major tumbles 30 or 40 years ago in the press. And one of the things that I came up on, cut my teeth on, was you're saved, and everybody in this circle is saved, and everybody outside of that circle thinks they're saved, and they're not. And so I came up in an environment where no one else really knew the Lord except the people that you knew that knew the Lord, and everybody else thought they did, but they were all wrong, and particularly those high church people who weren't even really saved at all. People, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Catholics, you didn't even consider that a serious conversation. And that's kind of the ministry idea that I came up in and, and, and then followed sort of in my dad's footsteps. And at 15 years old, I preached my first sermon. And at 18 years old, I pastored my first church. And by 20 years old, I was full-time in evangelistic ministry. Got married at 18 because that's what you did. If you were in ministry, you couldn't do this by yourself. You needed a partner. Got married at 18, gave up my childhood Gave up, didn't go to prom, didn't play high school sports, laid all that aside for king and cause and for ministry. And by the age of 27, I was a full-time pastor, and I spent 11 years doing the full-time pastor thing, taking a church from 
50 to 500, transitioning from one campus to the other, going to the multi-service setting, doing all the things that you're supposed to do. And then about 37 years old, the Holy Spirit began to tug me and said, wouldn't it be time to have a childhood? I can restore that to you. I can give that to you. You can keep holding on to what it is that you've built because I worked really, really hard to build something. Really hard to build a name, really hard to build a reputation. I heard from a lot of people that I was gonna be the next this person and the next that person. You see, it's not just the feeding of the ego, but it was the validation that you'd made right choices. It was the validation that giving all of those things up was the right thing to do because look at what you're doing. Your church is growing, your ministry is growing, your footprint is getting out there. And so I heard all of the, you're gonna be the next this guy and you're gonna be the next that guy and your church is gonna be the next this and doing all of the things that we're supposed to do. And, and, and here's the real twist to the story that a room like this will understand. You can't just say this anywhere because they don't know what you mean when you say, when I had a revelation of grace and a revelation of the kingdom, okay? You understand what that means, so we'll move on from there. I had a revelation of grace in the middle of all of that and the church that exploded was a grace church, a church that moved away from the idea of your backslid every week and, you, and, and uh, that moved into the love of God, and that moved into the favor of God, and we transitioned that church away from the fear and intimidation gospel, which is not a gospel because the gospel's a lot of things, but it's never bad news. And so we moved away from the bad news and into the good news, and even in the middle of that, something began to be wrong. Because this is the part that I really want to focus in on today because what happens is sometimes we think that if we can get the doctrine right, everything else will somehow fall into line. And I think our idea is that the issue with why we're burning out or why we're getting tired or why we're struggling is because we haven't got the doctrine right. But that doesn't make you any different from anyone else that ever pastored a church that feels like if they could just get something right, then everything else would go right. But what I found was that it didn't matter that you had the grace doctrine right or the kingdom doctrine right or your eschatology right. As long as you were carrying new wine in an old wineskin, as long as you were carrying the freshness of who he is in the old wineskin of the way you were taught to do things, the way you were taught to build a church, the way you were taught to validate a ministry, the way you were taught to approach people, what you were told was your responsibility and your job. Until you dropped the old wineskin, you really wasn't carrying the new wine in anything that matters. And that transition from that into the Lord finally releasing us, we moved in, in 2015, we moved to the West Coast. I took my kid, my son to a different school to play baseball, his passion. The next three years became about my oldest son. And I said, Lord, what do you want to do in this season? And in that season, we moved out of the traditional pastoral role, went full-time on the road and watched as the Holy Spirit sort of coalesced a monthly meeting there in Southern California that grew and grew and grew. And then three years into that, I felt the Lord pulling us again to go, let's take another transition into another season, into another spot, because the leaves on the tree start to change as the season changes. And then in 2018, for our daughter's sake, we moved to Georgia. And in that season, moved her into a school that put her in the right place and watched as the Holy Spirit once again, as we're still out on the road, begin to coalesce and put little groups around us. And now we have a little group that meets every week. They call me their pastor. I call them my friend. No one would call what we do a church, but it's a church. 
because you cry together and you laugh together and you pray together and you worship together and you share life together and you share communion together. What's more churchy than that? There's no sign on the outside. It's a theater with movie posters on the walls because we have to rent some, another, someone else's space. And uh, we get together and we talk about Jesus and it's a glorious time. And out of that developed another meeting three hours away that we're glad to go to. And out of that developed a monthly meeting here. And I'm watching the Holy Spirit with a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face say, I'm going to move you into a season that you didn't see coming, that you don't know how to create. But there's a key to all of this. And I told you that story, not just so you'll know more about me but so that you'll maybe be able to learn something I'm learning, but haven't learned, but I'm learning, and that is this. It is impossible for you to move forward if you hold on to where you are. You cannot go into your tomorrow thinking about your yesterdays. Your yesterdays, Paul said, I count them as dung. And the only thing dung is good for is to fertilize your future. So what you have back there isn't worthless. It's only valuable if you use what happened back there to influence where you're going tomorrow or at the very least to help someone else with where they're going tomorrow. And we, I know we're in a society that goes, I hate history. They go, I hate, I, I, my, my kids would tell me this. I don't want to take history class. I hate history. They didn't like my answer, but it's still appropriate. I said, because if without history, we lose the utility of the phrase, I've been down this road before. What does I've been down this road before mean? I have history. And I like history, but we need history because it says I've been down this road before. I've seen this before. I've done this before. I learned something in this before that maybe will help me in my future. And so I want to try to help us today because I think we're all doing this to something. This right here. This is the grasp. All right. Now, we're doing this to a lot of somethings. And you only have two hands. So... If you just did simple math, you're really only going to be able to effectively grasp a couple of things. I'm not talking about concepts. Your brain's unbelievable. It can grasp an enormous amount of concepts. We use very little of its space. It can do a whole lot better than just streaming a Netflix show. It's got more space in there. It's got a lot more memory. It can apply. I'm not talking about what we comprehend. I'm talking about what we hold on to that we think matters. And sometimes it's money and sometimes it's possessions and sometimes it's relationships and sometimes it's jobs and sometimes it's identity and sometimes it's ourself and whatever. And I'm not here to try to put your category together for you. You have your own work to do today. See, I'm a messenger to lay out for you the instruction that if you apply it, might bring you the answer that you need. And in that, I want to, I want to, help you to try and not just identify what might be in that grass, but to identify if it is something that should be let go of. Because if it can be let go of, it probably should be let go of. 
There are some things that we can't let go of because they are ours covenantally. You see, God can't let go of you. You are his covenantally. No man can pluck you out of my hand, he said. That is a grasp that is ironclad. He has you right there in his hand, and you can't squeeze your way out. I love that. I I can't figure out how to get out of that grasp. I don't want out of that grass, but I'm safe there. Why doesn't he let go? Because he can't covenantally let go. He has cut a covenant at the cross that says, I hold on to mine. I resurrect my own. You can't go anywhere. And therefore, that teaches me a lesson. And that lesson is some things I must hold in my grasp. And so I have a covenant relationship with my wife. I must hold that in my grasp. Hell or high water. We celebrate 27 years of marriage this August. Same woman I married at 18 because even though I was an idiot in a lot of things, I was smart enough to hold on to the one thing that mattered. And people ask me all the time, how'd you make it 27 years? I say, don't get a divorce. I didn't say I was a genius, but it works. Just don't get a divorce. That's the first step. Just keep holding on. Yeah, it's not easy to hold on. Ask a rodeo rider. It's never easy to hold on. But holding on's the only way. So some things are in covenant grasp, and I hold them, and I'm in a covenant with my kids because they carry my DNA, and I owe it to them. And because of that, I'm in a covenant with them, and so their lives matter to me more than your life matters to me. And it should because that's the way the Father looks at you. And you matter so much to the Father that he won't let you go because not only are you in covenant with him, you're his child and you carry his DNA. And when he looks at you, he sees a glimpse of heaven and he hangs on when you're slopping hogs because he won't let go, he's got you in his grasp. And he hangs on when you're out in the back 40, not at the party, because he sees his Father's eyes in your eyes and the heritage of heaven inside of you. And so he holds on whenever everything gets rough because that's what he does. But he also teaches us that holding on is not always what we have to do because we have to determine the things that matter and we have to determine the things that belong in our grasp. I want to take you to a story today in the Gospel of Luke that at first blush, I'll admit, has absolutely nothing to do with your grasp. But I think if we look a little deeper, we might find that Jesus is saying something else. And I want to go to Luke chapter 12. And I want to relay for you a story, and I don't know if we're using the same translation. I'm going to read what's in front of me, and you read what's in front of you, and you've probably got a Bible app, so you can do what you want anyway. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. I want to start here, and then I want to read the context of this story. This is often called the parable of the rich fool. And you might say, how does the parable of the rich fool have anything to do with transitioning or grasp? And I think there's a great adventure we can learn from Jesus. But out of the gate, we get this remarkable moment. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? I want to stop there for just a moment and point out one little thing. I don't know how much of this is necessary to get us into the body of the text, but 
I really felt compelled to say this this morning. Jesus in this text says something quite remarkable. It sounds a little bit like this. Why are you asking me to fix your stuff? You fix your stuff. And, and what I want to just lay out there as a way to begin today is, I think we're doing our people a disservice when we say to them, Jesus is the answer for all of your problems. The truth is, is that sometimes you bring your stuff to Jesus and he says, what are you asking me for? That's in your hands. I'm not going to force your fingers open to let go of that. You're going to have to let go of that. I'm not going to make you pick up that and follow me. You've got to pick that up and follow me. Don't come to me and ask me to fix what is your responsibility to fix. I don't do your work for you. I finished the work. I want you to get in my work. I don't want to belabor this point, but it also shows me it's the front door into a greater story because this actually sparks something in Jesus. This moment that a man comes to him, it kind of sounds a little whiny to me. A guy comes in and goes, hey, Jesus, me and my brother can't get along. He just won't do what I want him to do. He won't divide with me the inheritance. Tell him to do what I want him to do. Kind of a classic prayer on our part. Like, Lord, my boss isn't doing what I want him to do. Could you just move on my boss to do what I want him to do? Or as we've tried on our spouse, Lord, show her. You tried that? That doesn't work really that well. I have found that Jesus often says to me, it ain't gonna work this way, son. You, you're gonna have to buck up, man up, get in there and talk. I don't, I don't, I don't do your work on my end. But sometimes it's they bring that to Jesus. They bring this conversation, this argument, and Jesus' response is, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Which also tells me that if Jesus refused the role of judge or arbitrator, I should probably refuse the role of judge or arbitrator which means that I don't solve people's problems as well. And that helps me to understand something that it took me too long. In fact, I never learned this when I was pastoring. And I'm only now learning it as the God filters a few people into my life strong enough to handle my mistakes. And that is, we don't fix people. They're not your job to fix. So they come into your church and into your presence and into your sermons and into your songs and into your membership they are not projects. You don't spot what is wrong with them and think, we're going to work on that. I'll have some counseling sessions with them. We'll fix that because it isn't your role, and thus you grab hold of something that doesn't belong to you, and that's grabbing a live wire. And the electrocution that will go through you should not have been in you, but you grabbed it thinking you could be a conduit for someone else's problem. And you can't take care of the world and fix them. You are not a Messiah. You are a servant. You are not their savior. You are washing their feet. And so splash them off with the water of God's word frequently and often and over and over. But don't try to clip their toenails. Don't try to buy them orthopedic ins insoles. When you look at their feet, Splash them off with the water of the word. We don't fix people. And so if Jesus refused to be the arbitrator and Jesus refused to be the judge, okay, who am I? I cannot fix you. What I am called to do is revel in the mystery that is you. Enjoy it. Watch what the Father says to you and does to you. Listen to see what he might say through you to me and what I might be able to put into your life that you and I have a relationship. This is... this. This kind of stuff that basically starts in our marriages. 
we're seeing it in our marriage as a reflection of what we have with God. It ought to be a little bit of what we're doing with our churches. I think one of the great mistakes we make in the Western world is that we start the American marriage with vows. I think this is a mistake. It's old covenant. We start our marriages with a list of promises. Promise I'm going to do this. Promise I'm going to do this. Promise I'm going to do this. We don't get up, we're grace people. We don't get up on church and make people promise their way into the kingdom, and yet we have them promising their way into the most important grasp they'll ever have. So I promise you this, 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 this. I'm going to break half of them because I'm not able to, I know we tried a big ministry called Promise Keepers, but it doesn't work. We don't keep promises when you lay law in front of people. It's not how it flies. I wish we wouldn't start with covenants of promises. I wish we would receive Spouses as gifts, God's perfect gift to us, and realize that what we're really doing in our marriage is planting everything we are into someone else. You are planting the best and the worst parts of you in your spouse. And when you plant the best parts of you in your spouse, you're hoping that because of who they are and the gift that God gave them to you, that it flourishes somehow. And you're planting the worst parts of you in your spouse so that that part of you can die and find new life through who they are. Because that's what a seed of corn does, is it goes into the ground and die. Unless it goes into the ground and die, it remains alone, single, by himself, not married. But if he goes into the ground of covenant and dies, he brings forth much fruit. He looks better on the other side than he would have if he had been by himself. And that's better than, I promise you, this, 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 and this. Instead, I receive you as the soil for what God wants to do in us, and your kids are not your fruit. I know we love to say that, our kids are our fruit. The fruit is the relationship that you have with one another when your kids are gone. If your kids are your fruit, empty nest is gonna give you a divorce. Because you're gonna have to remove the troops to rally around something else that's not Johnny's softball game. It's gonna have to be something bigger. And so if our grasp is just what we joint love, it might not be enough, but it needs to be something more covenantal and we plant, I, that wasn't, I didn't want to say any of that about marriage today, but I chased the rabbit where he jumps and runs and maybe somebody needs it. And then from that moment, Jesus transitions into what feels like a mini sermon on money. And one of the reasons why the rich fool parable doesn't get preached a lot is because we don't like sermons on money, and we assume that's what Jesus is talking about. But I'm here to say to you today that money is simply the primary. It might be the surface argument that Jesus makes, but there's something much deeper going on when Jesus says in verse 15, take care. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. That's an interesting phrase. All kinds of greed. Doesn't it seem like there's one kind of greed? What's greed? Money, right? Stuff, possessions. But all kinds of greed. Maybe I'm reaching out for a lot of things that doesn't have just to do with money, but a lot of things I'm trying to grab and hold on to. Jesus said, be on guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, or as the old King James says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things which he possesses, the abundance of things which he holds on to. And the Greek word for possessions is huparkante, which means goods or what you have on hand. Hear that phrase. Goods or 
What you have on hand. That sounds to me like what you have on your hand. And what do we do with things on our hand? We grab them. And Jesus says, be careful. Be careful. Be cautious. A man's life, his whole body, his whole being, his whole aura, his whole existence isn't what he has on hand. In other words, you are not made up simply of what you can hold on to because if you were, you'd be made up of a couple of things. And surely you're worth more than a couple of things. Because a couple of things is about all God equipped you to hold on to in the natural realm. And so in the spiritual realm, Jesus is taking something very easy to understand like physical possessions and preaching a spiritual sermon because he says, a man's life, all that he is, his psyche, literally, his the. Everything from the top to the bottom is really more than he can get his hands on. And I always wanted a follow-up verse. I remember as I was reading this in my formative years ago, man's life consists more than the abundance of things that he possesses, but what it does consist of. I always wanted Jesus to say, but what it does consist of is this. And I was frustrated for a long time that Jesus didn't give me a, well, then what does it consist of? Because what I didn't realize is I was missing the point. Man's life doesn't consist of what he can grab hold of because what he can grab hold of ends when his life ends. If his life only consists of what he can grab hold of, he doesn't have much at all. And therefore, learning what to let go of becomes imperative to me because I want my life to count. And so I got to learn what to let go of. And what to let go of then leads to the story that we often ignore. And I, want, I don't want to do that today because I think there's something in here that we need. Beginning in verse 16. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? I don't have a place to store my crops. And then he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns. And I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Actually, in the Greek, he uses the same word for life that he uses in the next verse for life. They're interchangeable in many parts in the Greek New Testament of soul and life. Not always. But the translators often made them that way. So for a moment, I want to imagine that what he maybe should have said is what Jesus says to him in response. And that is, life... You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life, that's why I think life is appropriate there, because they're the same word. Your life is being demanded of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? For it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich towards God. So let's think in these terms. If life is so much more than a man possesses, and possesses is the Greek word for goods or what you have on hand, let's assume that means what you have that you can, if it's on your hand, you could grasp. And if your life consists of more than you could grasp, what's the point of the parable of the rich fool? Because in the parable of the rich fool, we have a man who has all that he needs, and with all that he needs, he simply adds more to all that he needs. He gets more stuff, or he grabs more. He already has a sufficient grab, but he grabs a little more along the way. It's easy for us to just cut him down because we think Jesus is talking only about money. 
But Jesus prefaced the statement by saying, watch out for all kinds of greed. Watch out for a life that thinks it matters how many toys it gets. And I don't just mean houses and cars and boats and lands and property, but watch out for a life that tries to fill itself with stuff because stuff becomes the identifier of a good life. And as I grab more, grab more, grab more, I become more responsible for what I grab. And in ministry, this is an elixir that tastes good going down and is painful to the belly. It's the roll that Ezekiel eats. That's sweet on the way down and painful when it gets there. And it is that role that says, I'm needed, I'm special, I'm called, I'm God's man of faith and power, I'm the woman God needs, I'm here to do this job, it can't be done without me until you're holding so much stuff, your hand cramps, spiritually. And we watch falls and failures and pain afflict the ministry from all of us who have grabbed so much because we think that that's our role. And our role is to shepherd people and to serve them and to love them, not to fix them, not to build churches. I like to ask people, Jesus said on this rock, I'll build my church. How's he doing at your church? Because none of us think Jesus is building our church. We think we are. That's why they called us. What would it look like if Jesus built my church? Well, take a look at what he did when he built his own, when he was in his own ministry. By the time he got to the cross, he had one dude left at his last service. So it seems to me like if Jesus were building the church, he wouldn't worry so much about the 80% parking rule. He wouldn't worry so much about whether or not we've got the wing we need. It might have a little bit more to do with John 13 and Jesus knowing that all things were given unto him and knowing where he was going stood up. That's his messianic moment. He stood up knowing that everything was his and girded himself with a towel and knelt down in front of his disciples and began to wash their feet. And they were as offended as we would be because Peter goes, you can't wash my feet. You're a king. Kings don't wash feet. He goes, this is the way we do this in this kingdom. So Jesus is asking, Jesus then says to him, unless you wash feet, you don't have any part in my kingdom. You gotta let go of this idea, Peter, that that's beneath you. You gotta let go of this idea that that job doesn't belong to you. And in some ways, you gotta let go of some of the jobs that really don't belong to you. Things that are not your call, because they're not your gift. Yeah, but I saw brother so-and-so do them. I went and did conferences like this for years, and for a long time tried with all of my power to bring myself in some way or the other into the way the other conference speakers conducted themselves. I was young, I didn't know what I was doing, but I figured if they were prophetic, I was supposed to be prophetic. If they walked around the room, laid hands on people, I was supposed to walk around the room, lay hands on people. If they paced back and forth when they preached, I was supposed to pace back and forth when they preached. If they spit, I'm supposed to spit. I mean, I had to sort of win in Rome. Took a long time to let go of that and just go, okay, here's what I'm called to do. It's all I know how to do. Anything more than that's me grabbing something I don't belong. It doesn't belong to me. So just let go. Finding your voice, finding your style, finding yourself doesn't just require practice. It requires letting go because you're actually holding on to a bunch of stuff that's holding you back from being who you're supposed to be because you still got brother so-and-so and sister so-and-so in your mind and how they would think and what they would do and letting go of that becomes paramount. It becomes what you have to do. But only when you grasp Nothing. That's the key. 
Jesus says, your life shall be required of you tonight. What's your life? What's a bunch of stuff I grasp? Not good enough because when you die, your hand comes open. And your life has to consist of more than what you held on to. It has to be something that represents something bigger. And if you just have toys, then you fall out of your hand and he goes, you fool, tonight the very thing you keep adding to is gonna be required of you. Why do you keep grabbing stuff when you can't carry it into the next life? And because we don't let go of where we were, we can't pick up what we should be. You wanna transition into a new season, you have to let go of the old one. You have to just let it be done. Sometimes you're going to sprinkle some of its concepts, principles, and ideas into the future, but you're never going to live there because it's where you used to be. I'll tell you a little story of the world, the way it looked when I, where I grew up. Southeast Missouri, I was born and raised in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, a little town on the very foothills of the Ozark Mountains in Missouri. The Ozarks are this beautiful flowing chain of mountains in Missouri that die at Popper Bluff. And a lot of other stuff does too. <laughs> at least it felt like it to me. There's a river there in the middle of the city called the Black River and on one side of the river it's flat as far as the eye can see and on the other side of the river the town starts doing this and then it does this all the way across Missouri. And Missouri becomes a very pretty state. When I tell people I'm from Missouri, they go, ooh, that's beautiful. And I go, yeah, it is if you go across that river. And my church, where I pastored, was, of course, over here on the flat side of the river, not in those woods. When I was growing up in those little gentle hills of the edge of the Ozarks, my uncles and great-uncles hunted raccoons. And I'm going to tell you a small raccoon story, all right? It, it helps me to understand grasp. Now, I know you're better or more than a raccoon, but for a moment... I'm going to show you how we think very much like the raccoon, which, by the way, is a crafty little bear. The raccoon is in the bear family. They are a crafty little animal that uh, seem to have some sort of sonar or radar built into their system that knows how to elude all tracking devices, namely raccoon-sniffing dogs. And so they'll run up trees and cross rivers and tops of sheds and jump back across the river and jump back across the river and jump back across the river like they're in a trapeze artist to elude the scent of animals. When you're training your dogs to run raccoons, you have to have a raccoon fur. And so my great uncles, you would hear them tell the story of, of how back, way back in the day before they could afford to go buy furs of their own. They needed to trap that first raccoon. And to do that, they didn't have a trap. And so they learned that you could hollow out a hole in a log in the middle of the woods, put a hollow spot six or eight inches in, and drive 16-penny nails at an angle all the way around that hole until it left just a little opening at the end of the nails. And then you drop aluminum foil into the bottom of that in clear moonlight, and almost inevitably, when you come back the next day, there would be a raccoon standing on that log with his little fist down. PETA people are not gonna like the next part, so just fast forward the video. <laughs> a little raccoon would reach his paw down into that hole and grab hold of that aluminum foil, and his, when he would ball up his fist and pull it back out, he would jam it into the back of those nails. I know, I told you, fast forward the video. And so he would stay there all night waiting, and they would walk up, and this is the part that 
you don't, okay, you know what happens to the poor raccoon. And I think, why doesn't the raccoon, and I would ask this, why doesn't the raccoon just let go? Because all he's got, he got his hand in there. And if he just lets go, he can slide it right back out. It's not even that difficult. The thing jumps across rivers. It runs down fence poles. It goes like a trapeze artist back and forth. He's not an idiot. I mean, he outsmarts everything in the woods. And yet, aluminum foil. <laughs> and the reason is very simple biologically. We share it with the raccoon. We don't let go of anything, especially if it was shiny enough to grab in the first place. <laughs> even though this ministry is killing me, even though this job is sucking the life out of me, even though this identity is untenable, even though I cannot continue in this manner without ripping the flesh off my spirit, man, I will die before I give up because that's what we do in the kingdom. And all the while, Jesus was saying to you, a man's life is way more valuable than the stuff he can grab hold of. And if you would just learn to let go of the stuff you thought mattered, you can figure out if it matters after you let go of it. Some stuff you could pull your hand out and go, eh, it wasn't as cool as I thought it was. Maybe it's worth jamming my life into this grasp. My marriage is worth jamming my life into that grasp. My children are worth putting my life into that grasp. My ministry is not. I am not in covenant with my ministry. I'm called. If he doesn't do it in Missouri, he'll do it in California. If he doesn't do it in California, he'll do it in Georgia. If he don't do it on the road, he'll do it on a Tuesday night in Bible studies. What I have learned is I don't know what he's up to. All I got to do is start, let go of the shiny parts. Just let go of the shiny parts and watch a man's life become enriched, not by the abundance of things he holds on to, but by his ability to let go of the things that doesn't matter. You know, true success is not the dynamic. True success is not the loud. Elijah is asked by God, what are you doing here in this cave? And Elijah goes, I'm the only one you got left. I'm it. And they want to kill me for it. And God, the Bible says, puts Elijah in the mouth of the cave and a wind blows and breaks the rocks. And in one of the most bizarre instances of biblical narrative, the narrative says, but God was not in the wind. And then an earth, the earth trembles and quakes. And the Bible doubles down and goes, but God was not in the earthquake. And then a fire falls, which is hard to even fathom where that comes from. I mean, I can figure out the wind. I can figure out the earthquake. Surely God won't triple down on the fire and act like he's not in that. But God 
was not in the fire. The Bible says, and then a still, gentle voice. And Elijah heard it. And the Lord was in the voice. And then remarkable, I didn't see this until just a couple years ago. The Lord, at that moment, steps into the story again and asks the exact same question, word for word. Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah's answer hasn't changed. Even though he just heard the still small voice of the Lord, he has the ability to discern the difference between the remarkable and the seemingly insignificant. It's the greatest gift God gives anyone, I believe. Because is is, someone asked me one time, what do, you, what do you count success? And everyone always in Q&A panels says, raising kids and raising grandkids that love the Lord. And I've always thought, well, what about people that can't have kids? So they don't have any success in the Lord. They need a better metric than that. Or what about people where your kids aren't living for God and they're just running like heathens? So you're supposed to walk out of that conference and go, well, I tried, you know, but I'm a failure. No. True success is being able to ignore the earthquake and the wind and the fire while everybody else calls it the Holy Spirit and listen to God. Elijah had that. But to do that, you got to let go of your infatuation with earthquakes, fires, and winds. And man, that ain't easy to do in a church world that amens it, shouts to it, applauds it, and books you. Elijah hears the still small voice, and God asks him a follow-up question. It's the same question. God's asking the same question because God's wanting a different answer. What are you doing here? And what he wants Elijah to say, I think, is, I was taking a break. I needed to know that you still heard me, that you still love me, but I'm ready to go now. And instead, read it for yourself. Elijah answers word for word the exact same way. I'm the only one you got left. They all want to kill me. And God says, okay, go anoint Elisha. He's your successor. Why? I can't use a guy who's got his grip where you have your grip. Go find Elisha. Give him your mantle. He'll grab it. Let go. Can we apply this to Jesus? Is there a place where Jesus does this? Where Jesus has hold of something and then goes, mm, I don't want it. Go to Philippians chapter 2. I think that the Apostle Paul borrows the concept. I am not claiming that the Apostle Paul had read Luke 12. Scholarly expertise tells us probably not, because the Gospels probably are not in print when Paul writes his letter to the church at Philippi. So I'll not make an assumption that he's read Luke 12, but I know he serves the same Jesus, and he's hearing from the same Holy Spirit. And I think when Paul says this in Philippians 2, verse 5, that that might be in his mind. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now that's a good starting spot. And an impossibility as far as I'm concerned. How am I supposed to think exactly like Jesus thought? Thanks for having the bar so high, Paul. And yet... Paul will then show us that it's not what you think it is. It's not about figuring out how to do stuff. Because that's what I always think when I think if I had the mind of Christ and figure out how to walk on water, turn the water to wine, uh, you know, heal the sick, raise the dead, as if Jesus had these theological principles that he had locked away and he knew how to unlock them in the correct order to get them. Because that's how we think a lot of times. If I could get the right verse and get the right life pattern, I'd be like Jesus. What was he doing that I could unlock? 
And the disciples thought that a lot of times too. Teach us how to do, teach us how to pray. When you pray, stuff happens. And, but the reality is, is it was not what Jesus had learned to grab hold of. It was what Jesus had learned to let go of. And we see that because verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. In the form of God, old King James being in the form of God, the Greek word for being is the root word for possessions from Luke 12. That which is at hand, it's huparko, being meaning that Jesus possessed the form of God, but did not regard it as something to be exploited. Harpegmos grasped. Jesus had in his possession the divinity of the ages, but did not think he should hold on to it. I can let go of some stuff. I've learned to let go of some stuff. Letting go of the divinity of the ages my equality with God on God's footing, letting go of that so that I could function through faith as a man, eh, that might be one of those things worth hanging on to. But the point is not that Jesus didn't think it was worth it. The point is that Jesus thought we were worth it. Because Paul says he emptied himself and took the form of a slave. Being born in human likeness and found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, because a God does not die. And so he let go. Because he knew you were going to die. And if you're going to die, I'm going to die with you. I just got to preach Easter this year. I don't get to preach Easter. Itinerant preachers don't get to preach Easter unless they elbow their way into the pastors. Hey, I'm in your town this week. And I don't do that. But I got invited to preach Easter. I hadn't preached Easter since 2015 unless I threw a service myself, which is fine, but to get invited in, I was so excited. Couldn't wait. I don't have some big story about some fantastic thing that happened. I was just bragging that I got to preach on Easter. <laughs> Sorry. I still got a few things in my grasp. Let's just let it go right there. Just let it go. Thank you, Jesus. No, I actually did have a point. <laughs> I just thought that was better to say it that way. And my point is that resurrection is so remarkable because it finally let God do the thing he had never been able to do. Because death come upon the whole human family. God needed to create a new man through resurrection. He never resurrected. So the resurrection is God getting to do a new creation reality. And so it's God moving into the human body, the one he watched Adam walk out of the garden in. And God takes that on, but to do that, he's got to let go of what it means to be God so that he can pick up what it means to be man. It's the greatest sacrifice the world has ever seen because who 
in their right mind lets go of their grasp of being like God to be like us. Only someone who loves us enough that says, if you die, I die, so that if I raise, you raise. Wow. Jesus had to let go of one thing in order to grasp another. Jesus had to let go of the divinity on equal terms to grab hold of humanity on equal terms. And so by grabbing hold of humanity on equal terms, Jesus could step into humanity. Let some things go. Seasons come and go. Let them go. Let some moments in your past go. Let some old voices in your head and your heart go. Sometimes they'll hold you back because you'll think, what would my grandpa think if he knew that I believed this doctrine? He'd be rolling over in his grave right now if he saw where our church was going with this theology. But sometimes all you're, being, all you're doing is being a slave to the ghosts of your past. They are not here. They died in the wilderness. No, I'm not dissing them. I'm not cutting them down. They died in your wilderness so that you could move into a promised land. And they did that on purpose because they believed in you. So don't drag what they did in the wilderness into the promised land. You don't need manna in a promised land. You need to plant your own crops. And so it isn't about replaying their tapes and their songs and their sermons and feeling if you can still line up in their theology. you got to let the old voice go. Quit holding on to the things from the past or you'll never be able to transition into a promised land. You'll never be able to grab hold of where you're supposed to go. Let go of how you did it. How you did it's how you did it. But it's not how you do it. And it's definitely not how you're going to keep doing it. Let go of how you did it because how you did it probably stinks of old wineskin. And you're carrying something too precious to do it the way you always did it before. So figure out what needs let go of in the identity that you held before. You might not be a counselor. You're called to preach. You might not be a therapist. Stop acting like one. Send your people to a professional. You need some therapy? Go get help. Stop calling that the work of the devil. Christ is your savior. You might need some help somewhere along the way. How did this whole thing get started? A guy comes up to Jesus and goes, will you make my brother give me the inheritance? And Jesus goes, I'm not your judge or your arbitrator. I don't solve this kind of stuff for you. Figure it out, man. You go, well, I don't want to. I, I, I think Jesus has to figure everything out in my life. Christ has already paid for everything in your life. Christ has already finished the work for everything in your life. But Christ tells you to let go. I will not pry your fingers apart to make you let go of your false identity. I will not do it. you got to let go of that. I will not pry your fingers apart to let go of your abuse and your pain and your hurt. I will not pry your fingers. I'll heal you. I'm washing you over with healing oil, Jesus says. I'm baptizing you in it. But you're gripping so tight to what happened to you. And then that has become a fist that you use. Have you ever watched a mad preacher? Have you ever been a mad preacher? Hey, man, I might as well throw it out there. Yes. What do mad preachers do? It's not that much different than in, any, than in any other walk of life. We take out on the very people we're supposed to be feeding and shepherding all of the pains we won't let go of because it gives us a therapeutic release, and then we cut down therapy. The therapeutic release is to spew out all your pain and your hurt and your anger and your heartache, and they got to sit there and take it. If they don't like it, 
Better keep your mouth off of the Lord's anointed. Go somewhere else. Go on down there. One of them churches don't follow the Holy Ghost. And pain and anger get spewed out. And then pain and anger foments in the crowd. And it's planted like a seed and it comes back to you and you wonder what's wrong with all these people. But you've been beating them up every Sunday for so long. What, no, you, no wonder a few fists get thrown your way once in a while. Yes. Oh, I'm under attack of the devil. No, you're not. You took a boat to Tarshish, you dork. You're supposed to be in Nineveh. Not under the attack of the devil. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Because this is where I want to end, because I don't think there's a better place to stop than to let you know that what really is happening when you let go is the death of the cross. Hear this, because this is the most important part of it, in my view. When you're dead, you can't grip anything. A dead man's hand lays as it falls. You can lay a million dollars. And the dead man doesn't grab it. Do you know why Jesus invites you to the way of death when you follow him? So that you will spend your life going, whatever you put there, I'll hold, but I won't grip it. And if you want it back, you can have it anytime. It's your church, it's your ministry, it's your life, it's your money. I don't, I just, I'm just carrying it. What I have, I give freely to you because I don't hold it. It's not mine. I'm, I'm not holding it. Here, what do you need? No brushing up against me on my way into the sanctuary isn't, isn't taking the edge off my anointing. That's the kind of ministry I was raised in. If you, if you talk to that guy on his way into the building, he's got to sit in the green room because if you talk to him on his way in the building, he'll take the edge off his anointing. What I've been given isn't mine. Those guys are gripping something that doesn't belong to them. And they're, gr they're gripping it so tightly. And then, and then the, the vitriol and the anger that comes out because we're trying to hold on to what's not ours. When Jesus has breakfast with Peter by the second charcoal fire of Peter's life and the last one that really matters, the one that redeems him from that first failure that he has. And, and when he has that breakfast with Peter, he goes, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. I don't know if we emphasize enough because we get so lost in the Greek on sheep and lambs. That's all we preach there. But what we really ought to pay attention to is they're not yours, Peter, and they never will be. They're mine, so feed them as if they're mine. So you are his. And because you are his, take his example. He thought it not a thing to be grasped. So I ask you, what thing do you think is worthy to be grasped? I don't know. I'm not your arbitrator. I refuse to be your judge. But I do say to you what Jesus did. A man's life is better, more than. Be careful for all kinds of greed, because a man's life actually is more than he can get his hands on. Because when he dies, he won't have his hands on anything. So die now, so that you don't have to worry about what to let go of. I say this to you today, because I wish someone had said it to me 15 years ago. Had they said it to me 15 years ago, I wouldn't have the dung of my past. 
to sprinkle his fertilizer onto maybe somebody else's future or somebody else's mistakes. So I let go of all of the things I wish I had learned. I let go of all of the stupid decisions I made. I let go of the wrong turns, because I made a bunch of them. But I gotta stop talking about them and dwelling on them. I gotta let them go. Because if you let them go, then maybe you'll be able to put your hands on what matters. And not hold on for dear life, but let go because you've lost yours. Father, thank you. Thank you for what, for me, has been therapy. The working through of the sound of your voice going, son, keep letting go. Keep letting go. I was taught for so long to keep holding on. Grab what you can grab, hold on to it, guard it. There are things, Father, that are in my grasp because they're my covenant. I'll never let them go. I'll take them in my heart to the other side and I'll carry them because it's how you designed us and created us. But there are other things I thought were important that I need to let go of. And I pray, Father, for every person in this room, pastors and lay people alike, we all are holding on to stuff. Help with our grasp. Our reach always exceeds our grasp because our grasp is almost always in the wrong things. Teach us to identify the difference. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.